Hey friends, welcome back to another Leroy UMC podcast. Now a couple announcements first. So March 10th from 5 to 7 p.m. is our annual fish fry to help the Edge kids to fund the mission trip this summer. Also, to tithe or give, you can go to www.leroyumc.org giving. We're continuing in a heavy series titled Living for the End. Not only can we face death honestly, we can talk about it, think about it, but one of the oldest spiritual disciplines in our faith is the contemplation of death because the contemplation of death forces us to reevaluate what really matters and what really gives us meaning. Let's send it over to Pastor Matthias. Amen. Well, friends, this morning is the second Sunday in the season of Lent, and we are continuing with our Lenten series that we are calling Living for the End. Uh, as we explained last Sunday, Lent Lent has always been a season in the church calendar when we can wrestle together with somewhat heavier subjects. Uh, and Lent has also traditionally, in the church's uh, history, Lent's traditionally been a season when we prepare ourselves for Holy Week, for Good Friday and for Easter Sunday, by following Christ on his journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel story as Christ was preparing himself for Good Friday. There's even, a, there's even a turning point in all of the Gospels where Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and then the whole story starts building towards the cross, building towards Holy Week. Uh, and with all that in mind, this year we are wrestling with a particularly heavy subject. We are talking about the cross. We are talking about endings. We are talking about death. And we are also talking about how preparing for, or even just facing the cross, facing death, is actually one of the oldest spiritual disciplines that our faith has. It's something that maybe we've lost in kind of our modern era, but uh, certainly has a long uh, history. And this morning, our passage that we're taking a look at is from the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus. Uh, and I apologize, it is a long scripture reading this morning, but Lazarus' story is one that you really have to read the whole story. You can't really take it in chunks. So our reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Friends, listen now for the word of the Lord. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? 
Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you? that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Christ Jesus, as we prepare to look for your new life on the road to Jerusalem this morning, I ask that if this message speaks your truth and shows your grace, then may it resonate with someone here and be remembered. But Lord, if this message misses your truth or does not speak your grace, then may it be forgotten in an instant. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Of all the things that you are likely to see when you go to an art museum, paintings, sculptures, photographs, children bored out of their minds, of all those things, one of the things that you are most likely to see, but least expecting to see at an art museum, are skulls. Sometimes it's obvious, especially in religious paintings. You might see a painting of a great Christian saint who looks as if they're deeply caught up in thoughts while they either hold or look at or have somewhere near them a skull, like St. Jerome contemplating and lost in deep thought in his study, or El Greco's famous painting of St. Francis in meditation. Other times, it isn't even a saint at all. It might be an ordinary person who just had a skull worked somewhere into their painting. Sometimes it might even be an ordinary scene. You might be looking at an image. Oh, if we can go back, Harry. Uh, sorry, I had too many slides this morning. There we go. You might be looking at an ordinary scene of ordinary everyday life, and then you suddenly realize that a skull has been discreetly worked somewhere into the background. Sometimes it's almost like playing Where's Waldo. Has anyone found it in this one yet? It's upper right. But it isn't even just skulls. Sometimes it's hourglasses. Sometimes it's withering laurel wreaths. Sometimes it's a pile of bones. And it isn't just paintings either. It's in architecture. It's in interior design. It's even in stories and plays. Think about how the character Hamlet is always holding a certain object whenever he contemplates to be or not to be. That's not a coincidence. From paintings to buildings to plays, once you start looking for it, you might realize that there are little symbols of death all over the arts. And all of it comes from the same artistic genre, the same artistic trope known as memento mori. Memento mori is a Latin phrase that quite literally means remember your mortality, or more simply put, remember your death. It was a very popular idea, and actually a very widespread social principle in all of society throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And as part of that movement for centuries, artists would look for different ways to work little symbols of death into their works to make a statement of some kind or just to remind viewers to memento mori, remember your death. But the important thing to know about it is that this wasn't meant to be morbid 
or depressing or upsetting in any way. Being reminded of your mortality or even having an actual encounter with death can be very upsetting, can be tragic, can be an awful experience, but that wasn't the goal of Memento Mori. Far from it, the whole idea behind the whole Memento Mori movement was the belief that sometimes thinking about or even contemplating your mortality can be a tremendous virtue. Memento Mori was an artistic genre that was all about working little reminders of death into all aspects of life in order to get us, the viewers, to stop and think. Think about death, think about life, and above all, stop and think about what we're living for. Because sometimes it's when we encounter death that we're pushed to make decisions about what it means to really live. More than just being the bizarre idea of a few eccentric artists, there's actually a lot of psychology behind that idea, behind the notion that thinking about your death can actually be healthy sometimes. A couple medical professors, Michael Gowan and Richard McQuellen, even had a name for it. They called it the phenomenon of mortal time. In their words, mortal time refers to the experience a person has when confronted with the prospect of it's something that happens all the time in all kinds of different ways, either directly or indirectly. It could happen when you sign a medical consent form in which death is listed as a possible complication. When you rush a loved one to the hospital not knowing what's going on, or even when you lose control for a moment while driving down an icy road. It happens any time that you have a sudden little brush with death that suddenly puts you into a very different frame of mind. Like someone who has a near-death experience and suddenly starts seeing the world very differently. That's mortal time. It's that different frame of mind that comes from experiencing some kind of reminder that time is not endless after remembering that one day you will die. And again, mortal time is not always a pleasant experience. It can be distressing, it can be jarring, it can be frightening. However, as difficult as it can be, the great virtue or the silver lining behind that experience of being thrown into mortal time is that mortal time is a frame of mind that is all about making decisions. We're reminded that time is not endless, and suddenly we start looking at the world in a very different way as our brain starts making very serious decisions about what is really worth giving our time to. Simply put, mortal time is the frame of mind in which we are forced to reevaluate and decide what truly matters, what gives us meaning. Is it our 
job, our grandkids? Is it traveling? Is, is it keeping up the farm? What is it? As odd as it seems, it's when we're reminded of our death that we are most likely to make decisions about what we're living for every day, which may be part of the reason why every single character who is affected by the death of Lazarus in John 11 begins to reevaluate what matters to them. That's something that I've always appreciated about John 11, the story of Lazarus, and the reason why it is so important to read that whole story and not just individual sections of it. It's so you can track the effect that this encounter with death has on everyone. First, there are the disciples, and particularly Thomas. When Jesus reveals in verse 14 that Lazarus is not asleep, he was using a metaphor that went right over their heads, but that Lazarus has in fact died, that news becomes an encounter for Thomas that puts Thomas into that mortal time frame of mind that forces him to start making decisions about what really matters and what Thomas decides matters to him is following Christ. It's the service he gives. It's the ministry he's been given, the calling he's chasing. That is what gives his life meaning. And so it's in mortal time that Thomas decides he is going to continue to follow Jesus even if we may die with him, Thomas says. Then there's Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha's whole world is shattered and shaken to the core by the loss of a family member who meant the world to them. But notice it's in their loss that both of them come out and finally make a decision to profess faith, make a decision that Christ really is the Messiah. They'd never actually done that before in the story. Yet by far the most important reevaluation and decision that happens when Lazarus dies happens to Jesus himself. It was dangerous for Jesus to go back to Bethany. As the disciples remind him in verse 8, it's an important detail, Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you. Not only that, but at this point in the gospel story, things have been building so that tensions between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem have really reached a boiling point, so that performing a great big public miracle right now at this point in the story might force the religious leaders to take drastic action. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it is bringing Lazarus back that really sets things in motion for Good Friday. This is the moment when Jesus' story, when the Gospel story makes a pivot, makes a turn towards the cross, makes a turn towards death, and Jesus knows it. The death of Lazarus, of this friend that he loves, is an encounter with death that forces Jesus to remember his own death, to face the cross. From the moment Jesus hears the tragic news that his friend is sick in verse 3, Jesus' own mind is in mortal time, and Jesus starts making decisions about what 
matters. And facing his own cross, Jesus decides that what matters to him are the ones he loves. Jesus makes a decision. Jesus goes back to Bethany. Jesus faces his death. He goes to Bethany and he does it all so that he can be there for Mary and Martha in their grief, so he can show his disciples that death is not something to live in fear of. Some things are more important than death, so he can mourn for this person who did mean the world to him, and so he can bring life to the ones he loves. It's when Jesus has a brush with death, it's in that upsetting and yet strangely holy moment when he is forced to remember that one day he will face the cross, that Jesus reevaluates what he is here to do, what gives his life meaning. And it isn't just teaching crowds. It isn't just healing the sick. It isn't even just forgiving sins, but it's giving life to the ones he loves, and that includes all of us. It's in mortal time that Jesus' purpose most clearly comes into focus and that his reason for facing the cross is given a face he loves. That may be the most important thing about this passage. More than any other scripture passage, it's the death of Lazarus that most shows us how much Jesus cares, how human Jesus is, how much he loves and who he loves. Jesus is troubled in spirit. Jesus weeps because it's the ones he loves that truly matter to him. To put it another way, Jesus doesn't just face Calvary because he has to, but Jesus faces Calvary because he sees the faces of Mary and Martha of Thomas and John, of Lazarus, of the crowd, of you and me. That's what mortal time forces us to do, to reevaluate and recognize what gives us meaning and to make a decision to live for that. That ministry, that faith, that cause, those loved ones, whatever it may be. And the beautiful thing is that that isn't just something that happens on, great, on the canvases of great artworks or in the pages of scripture. That is something that happens to all of us. We don't need to see skulls in paintings in order to remember our death. Life has plenty of ways of reminding us that time is not endless and all Admit, none of those reminders are pleasant. Whether it's hearing news that a friend or a loved one is ill, hearing a diagnosis that shakes us to the core, signing papers that make us pause, or having our own near-death experience, whatever it might be, it's never easy to memento mori, to remember our death. It's never easy to turn with Jesus towards Jerusalem and see the cross. But the great hope that we have in those difficult moments is the hope that sometimes it's when we're standing in the shadow of the cross 
that we're finally able to see the light in our life. Memento Mori may not be the most joyful artistic style, but the good news is it is a way of looking at the world that gives us reason to stop, to think, to appreciate every bit of the life that we have. Mortal time may not be the most comforting frame of mind to be in, but the good news is it is a way of looking at our life that forces us to make a decision and commit to those things that flood our lives with meaning. And the tomb at Bethany and the tomb of Good Friday may not be the places we want to go, but the good news is those are the places that most clearly remind us that the tomb can always be opened. In paintings, in stories, in worship, in all kinds of ways, with Christ we remember our death. But only so we can remember the things that give us life. And thanks be to God for it. Amen. Friends, please pray with me. Christ Jesus, help us as we journey with you on the road to Jerusalem. Let us hear once again the news of your death, but more importantly, Lord, let us hear once again the news of your life. Christ, let us turn with you towards Bethany, toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, and let us face without fear or hesitation anything that the road might bring, for you are with us every step of the way. Christ, help us to turn and remember our death this and every day that we might stop and remember all the miraculous things that give us life. In your name we pray. Amen. Again, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you are blessed and that you are a blessing. Go in peace.